Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all today, and thank you to the music team for the songs that have prepared our hearts for our time in God's Word today. I want to begin this morning with a question. What is black and yellow, insults everyone immediately and without warning, and has made billions of dollars in profit since its introduction in 1991? Well, if you guessed the Four Dummies series of books, you are correct. What began as a single tech book inspired by an old Volkswagen manual for idiots has expanded into an empire of over 2,000 topics in languages spanning the globe. Some topics seem unnecessary. Breathing for dummies. Seems like either you've figured it out or you aren't going to finish the book. <laughs> and you can see why some, like Personal Finance for Dummies, made it into the top five for dummies books of all time, but I was a little more surprised to find out that Beekeeping for Dummies is also in the top five of all time. I had no idea how many beekeepers there are, apparently. In an article on the rise of this publishing empire that was uh, put out in the Sydney Morning Herald, I found it particularly interesting that they went on a little rabbit trail. This is going somewhere. Documenting the history of these simplistic self-help books. And can you guess what the oldest example they cited was of a how-to guide? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is actually where they drew inspiration. Turns out that long before computer nerds were trying to help dummies use MS-DOS, God was trying to teach dummies how to worship. And this morning we're going to continue in that noble trend. We're going to make it 2001 topics, so I have a book just for all of us. If you see your notes this morning, that is our, our title, Boasting for Dummies. Looking around the world today, it's clear that both in the world and in the church, there is confusion as to what should be the foundation of, of our confidence in life, of our boasting, the object in which we declare our optimism and reason for being excited. And so I want to turn our attention to our text this morning and let Paul break down for us the surprisingly simple but counterintuitive principles of boasting for dummies. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians? We'll be continuing on in our study there. And if you are able, I'd encourage you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. If that's a burden, please don't feel bad to stay seated. But if you're able to stand to honor the reading of God's Word, we'll be reading this morning 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26, says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? 
Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to spend this time in your word. And more than that, I thank you for the chance that we've had to unite our voices and to sing what is true together with one heart. We're grateful for the chance to fellowship with each other and the relationships that are represented here, for the chance coming up for us to partake of communion and renew our enjoyment of that covenant that was inaugurated in the blood of your Son. We're grateful for this day and for what it represents, not only as a moment in our week to align our hearts and to set our affections and to call our will, but also as another drumbeat in that plodding rhythm that announces the return of Christ, the advance of your church until you return to establish your kingdom. And so I pray this morning that you would give us great encouragement, that our boast would be in you and it would be a loud one. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you recall in our study of this church here in Corinth and Paul's letter to it, we've been following along as Paul is trying to reach out to a people with a really bad attitude. They don't like Paul. They don't like Paul because he's not cool enough. He's not smart enough. He doesn't say the right things the right way. And within the church, they're fighting with each other. They're forming all these cliques. It's a church that's full of comparisons and judgments and human-centeredness. Their self-righteous bickering is a cover on their unrepentant sin that Paul will also be needing to address. And Paul understands that what's going on here in Corinth is not just a bad habit. It's a fatal flaw. He needs to reshape their thinking completely about what the gospel is and about what the Corinthians are. And by reshape, I mean turn their thinking completely upside down, which in this case is turning it back right side up again. And last week, we looked in God's Word at Paul's clear reminder that the message of the church is and always must be the word of the cross. And that the word of the cross will always be foolish to this world. You cannot have a fashionable gospel, Paul lays out for the Corinthians. Christ crucified will always be the message that scandalizes the Jew and insults the Gentile. However, Christ crucified will also always be the message that saves the called, whether Jew or Greek. And this week, Paul is going to pivot from looking at the word we proclaim to the people who proclaim it. And Paul drags a mirror out and bids us all take a look at ourselves. And in the process, he's going to walk us down the counterintuitive path to boasting for dummies. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our first point in your outline is this. Consider God's counterintuitive people. Consider God's counterintuitive people. From verse 26, Paul begins this way. For consider your calling, brethren. That word for at the beginning is because he's continuing the thought that he left us off with at verse 25 when he said, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the principle that proved the superiority of the word of the cross. But it's a principle that Paul is now going to apply in another way. And the other way is to the Corinthians themselves. He wants them to consider, or literally that word means to look at intently, honestly, with an unveiled, you know, look, take a close examination of their calling. When God, by his Holy Spirit, brought the men and women of the church in Corinth to faith in Christ, 
just what sort of people did he call? It's a thought experiment that's valuable for every Christian in every church, not just Corinth. Notice that Paul is still referring to them here as brethren as well. He isn't standing back and saying, just look at yourselves. He's saying, I'm part of this family too. Let's look at ourselves. Let's be honest with who we are as the family of God. Okay, Paul, we're considering, we're looking. What am I supposed to notice here? He begins this way. Consider that there were not many wise according to the flesh. It's probably about as far as Paul needed to go before his audience began to pick up on where he was going with this. And they're starting to flinch a little bit. This church here was enamored with their local culture's obsession with philosophy and fancy rhetoric. They idolized the brilliant orator and the clever. And in contrast, they looked down their noses at Paul's simple and humble presentation of Jesus the Messiah. And in essence, Paul is reflecting their own scorn right back at them with the power of a mirror. If they want to evaluate wisdom on the criteria of the world and its fallen categories, then it's not just Paul who's going to be in trouble. The Corinthians themselves are mostly a group of dummies. That word flesh there, according to the flesh that shows up in this verse is the first time Paul in his letters that he wrote used this term. It's a word that will become a major theological category defining word for Paul. It's one of those words to listen for, to watch for as you study not only 1 Corinthians but all of Paul's writings. It's a word that he uses to not just refer to skin or meat like we tend to use it today, but this word flesh for Paul was a word to differentiate between the desires and habits that characterize our new nature in Christ and the desires and habits that characterize our fallenness, who we are apart from Christ. It's one of those words, as I said, to watch for carefully because whenever you see it show up, Paul is invariably making a contrast between human and divine realities. And in this case, Paul's point is pretty direct. Though there were and always will be exceptions, some of all y'all are smart. Good job. Though there will be exceptions, the general rule is that when you look at those God called to be part of his church, it is not the most intellectually impressive bunch according to popular standards. Can I get an amen? If we had the lauded intelligentsia of the world over for a potluck at VBC, they wouldn't be very impressed with us. But Paul's not done. We aren't just a bunch of dummies on average. We are also pretty short in the cultural status department. He goes on to say, not only are there not many wise according to the world, there are also not many mighty. And in your mind, you can sort of tack on that according to the flesh phrase to all of these categories because he's examining the Corinthians through their own worldly lens. That word mighty doesn't refer exclusively to strength. He's not getting on their case for how much they can or can't bench press. He's talking about their stature and their influence, how much weight they carry around town. 
Not only were the Corinthians a less than Ivy League bunch on the whole, but they were also, for the most part, not the movers and shakers around town. And that's also true today. The church has always thrived most among the powerless and among the downtrodden. Just notice how absolutely ecstatic the church gets every time a Tim Tebow or a Kanye West identifies as a Christian. Right? We make such a big deal. <gasps> Everybody, we got one! Not because it's so common, but because it's relatively rare for somebody to be considered in the upper echelons of cultural influence to name the name of Christ. And somehow I think we underscore just how little we understand the point Paul's making in this passage by how much we overreact to somebody who is among the mighty coming to faith. And then Paul concludes this brutally honest evaluation with one last category, not many noble among the believing Corinthians were very few who belonged to the upper echelons of the nobility and, and elite status that were from the right blood. Every country has their elite families, whether it was the Herods in ancient Israel, whether it's the Kennedys, for example, in America. Noble birth will always be a marker of importance in this world's estimation. When the membership roles were consulted for the church in Corinth, there weren't many of the right names on those roles. Lots of Smiths and Johnsons, not a lot of Hamiltons and Stanleys. And you know what? I checked. Do you know what other church has quite a few Smiths and Johnsons? This one. We have had one Hamilton, and we were visited once by a Stanley. As a whole, the church has rarely been known as the impressive place to be to rub shoulders with all of the right people. Commentator Gordon Fee drew attention to a quote that goes all the way back to within a century of the writing of this book. A skeptic and a critic of the church named Celsus, he said this, there, speaking of the church, their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. The church has had a reputation for a while. Paul would disagree with Celsus's conclusion about who could or could not ultimately be convinced of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he would largely agree with Celsus's demographic analysis. So what are we to take away from Paul's self-esteem-destroying broadside here? Well, he's going to lay it out for us more in just a bit, but I want to pause here for a couple observations. And the first is this. If the church is going to boast, it will have to be unconventional boasting. If the church is going to boast, it will have to be unconventional boasting. We ought to abandon as an enterprise the attempt to try to get the church to look respectable by the categories that our world admires. And the reason for that is God staunchly refuses to call the right people. 
God refuses to fill his church with those who are necessary to be respectable in the eyes of the world. We are what we are. And that's by God's design. And so if we're going to boast as a church, it's not going to be because we are so wise, we are so mighty, or we are so noble. We're going to have to find some other way to do it. Secondly, criticizing a church's composition is criticizing a church's calling. What I mean by that is, if at some point we look around this room and it looks different than it does now, and we're in an area where demographics are rapidly changing, and our church will likely look different and feel different in the years ahead, if at some point we look around this church at the people that God has called to be here, and we say, you know, I just, I just miss the good old Valley Bible Church. We have criticized the calling of God. We have impugned his wisdom in building his family his way. To look around and say, you know what, there's a bunch of not very wise, not very mighty, not very noble people here, is to say, sounds about right. That's what it's supposed to be. That's how God does things. We must be very careful... I read an interesting phrase this week I hadn't run across before, the suburban captivity of the church. And there can be, there can be a protectivist approach that suburbia has to the way our church feels that tries to shut out the way God's spirit moves. And we need to make sure that that is never true here. Thirdly, don't be a church or a Christian in denial. What I mean by that is don't waste too much energy trying to convince yourself that you're wise, mighty, and noble. Don't hang your contentment and your sufficiency and your joy on whether or not you can convince yourself that you're all that. Because down that path is nothing but frustration and hypocrisy. It's okay to say, I is what I is. And I think for many, especially for young men, it is so vital that God brings them to a point of pretty profound humbling where they have to look honestly at themselves and say, God's not very impressed with me. And to be frank, most other people aren't either. That's honesty. That's honesty. But being objective about ourselves, though humbling, should not be defeating and the reason it's not defeating isn't because we have some superpower hidden somewhere else that we just need to discover using the secret Bible code. But it's because we, when we're honest with ourselves, are able to finally understand how through our own inadequacies, God is accomplishing his counterintuitive plan that will triumph over everything. And that's what we see in verses 27 to 29 is God's counterintuitive plan. And he's going to need one since he decided to work with such a counterintuitive people. And Paul is going to begin to work back through the same three categories he just introduced, the wise, the mighty, the noble. And he's going to show us how God loves to invert those categories for his glory. And he begins in verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
If the church isn't full of the wise according to the flesh, no worries. It turns out that God prefers to work in direct opposition to the wisdom of this world. Now that word shame has a lot more significance to Paul into the ancient world than we typically understand it to today. When we talk about shame, we often primarily just mean a feeling, a feeling that we're experiencing. And it makes this verse sound like God is going to embarrass the wise. He's going to make them feel real bad, make them blush awkwardly or cringe a little bit. That's not what Paul is primarily emphasizing. He's using the shame language here that has roots throughout Scripture all the way back to the Old Testament. Recall how David pleaded with God to come to his aid lest he be shamed by his enemies. David wasn't afraid of being embarrassed. He was afraid of being murdered. The honorable was what was vindicated to be true. The shameful what was what was proven to be false and laid bare as impotent. And David understood his life, his reputation, all of that was tied up together. And he says, God, take concrete action, lest my enemies triumph over me. And Paul is saying here that God has a particular fondness for bringing to shameful ruin the wise schemes of man. He's not just embarrassing smart people. He is taking the wisdom of this world and bringing it down to nothing. And he's going to do that through those very things that are despised as foolish. He's not going to say, you think this is smart? I'm going to crank it up to 11. He's saying, you think this is smart? I'm going to undo you by the very thing you despise. Of central importance is, of course, the foolish message of the cross that Paul has just taught. The work of Jesus on the cross is simultaneously the most intellectually laughable salvation our world could have ever imagined. And it is the reality which guarantees the complete undoing of every other philosophy and system of thought. It is the definitive counterpoint to every brilliant idea every fallen man has ever had. And what he is doing with wisdom, he's also doing with might and nobility as well. Look with me next. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The weak things of the world are the things which are considered to be of little weight and significance are God's favorite tools in his toolbox. God did not send his son to incarnate as a Caesar and to offer himself for mankind in some glorious display in the, in the Colosseum with pomp and fanfare. No, it was a carpenter who was executed by a Roman politician because of political pressure who thereby secured the utter downfall of all the ruling elite who will not bend the knee to Jesus. God has been doing this ever since. How many monarchs, dictators, politicians, wealthy magnates, and warlords have tried to draw the line and halt the work of the gospel and say, not here only to see God keep doing his work and doing it through cobblers like William Carey who brought God's word and the message of the cross to the people of India for the first time. Or one of my favorite recent examples through people like Eric Foley in South Korea who have just been launching balloons with Bibles that float into North Korea and has been so affected that North Korea made that a treaty item in negotiating peace between the two halves of that peninsula Pray for him. He's been charged with a series of crimes for floating balloons. 
I also look forward to hearing in glory the stories of so many mothers whose faithful prayer and diligent teaching have seen the simple truths of Scripture sink more deeply into their children's hearts than the words of a score of doctorate-possessing university scholars were able to. God loves to work through the weak things of this world, through people like us, to bring down the strong and the mighty and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen, Paul goes on to say in verse 28, if we aren't noble, if we don't have the right blood, according to this world's estimation, that's okay. God uses the simple and common things to expose the failings of everyone and everything considered to be at the top. This is how God works. And Paul summarizes that whole process by simply saying God uses the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. In short, God uses what is not to bring to nothing whatever this world thinks is enduring and important. And that is central for Paul to his entire understanding of the cosmic effects of the gospel. When we think about the word of the cross, I think sometimes we reduce that simply to what do I have to believe to be a Christian? But for Paul, the word of the cross was about so much more. It is truly about the reconciliation of all things in Christ. It is about everything that is fallen and opposed to God being brought to nothing and a perfected people dwelling with God for all of eternity in a perfected new heavens and a new earth. For Paul, the gospel goes to the ends of the universe. And that's another theme to be listening for as we go through 1 Corinthians and as we study other letters from Paul. When Paul uses that word nullify in the New American Standard, he uses it throughout this book and almost always in the context of what Christ is doing cosmically at the end of time. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, the rulers of this world are being brought to nothing because of the rise of the king of kings. Yet we do speak wisdom, I'll get this on the screen for you, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. They're on the way out. In chapter 6, verse 13, the appetites of this life, even for things as basic as food, are going to be replaced by what is perfect. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Even amazing things like prophecy and the gift of tongues that were being used there in the church in Corinth are temporary and will be done away when Christ has accomplished all his will. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. The final kingdom will be the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And on that day, there will be no competing rule, authority, or power. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished, nullified, all rule and all authority and power, and our great doom and the most cursed part of the curse of sin, cannot stand in the face of the victory of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy that will be nullified is death. When Paul is talking about God nullifying the things that are with the things that aren't, 
He's thinking big. He's looking at the story of history. A broken world is going to be brought to nothing. A broken system of power and oppression is going to be brought to nothing. And it's going to be brought to nothing by those very things that all the powerful and the mighty will be saying, man, that's dumb. Man, that's dumb. Until that very thing extinguishes them. Paul says, this is how God works. You want to evaluate your church. You want to evaluate God's word. You want to evaluate my message according to the world's framework. It's on the way out. It's even now unraveling. It's collapsing. It's about to be rendered as nothing. You really want to make that your standard? The most powerful example I can think of this principle is the one that Paul wrote about to the church in Philippi. Paul's enthrallment with the big picture view of the gospel was tied to his big picture view of Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming as though nothing, and came as a slave, obedient to the point of death. And it was for that reason that he was given a name above every other name. And so I hope we grasp how utterly and purposefully counterintuitive the plans of God are. It doesn't just happen to work out that way. This is how God wanted it. He not only uses what the world calls foolish, he destroys the wisdom of this world with that foolishness. He not only uses what this world calls weak, he destroys what this world calls strong through that weakness. He not only uses what this world calls despised and base and not noble, but he destroys what this world calls noble through what seems to be nothing. And why does he do it that way? Why did he plan to do it so So profoundly counterintuitively, well, Paul tells us, so that, verse 29, no man may boast before God. That's why he did it that way. The end result is that no man will ever be able to stand before God and boast on the basis of his own merits. Nobody will ever come to God with something in his hand and say, look what my wisdom has accomplished. Look what my strength has brought about. Look what my nobility has influenced. The most important lesson in boasting for dummies is this. Dummies shouldn't boast about themselves. This wasn't a lesson that Paul reveals to us for the first time in our text. In fact, everything that we've been studying so far this morning has been a Sunday school lesson by Paul on Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, the Lord says this to his people. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Whether in the Old Testament it's looking for salvation of a city and of a nation in face of great danger, or whether in the context of the gospel it is talking about the salvation of the world itself, it is beyond useless to boast in those very things that God is bringing to ruin So does this mean that the future should be boasting free? Well, no, actually. It 
just needs to be boasting specific. Paul brings us to the conclusion of his argument by taking us unsurprisingly back to the word of the cross. And so I want us to move there, but as we do so, keep one more important lesson in mind, and that is this. Let us learn to see the world through God's eyes. See the world through God's eyes. We should be very nervous when the church is being successful according to the categories of the world. Right, the church gets so excited and dumps all of its resources there. Quick, take advantage of this opportunity. Take advantage of this platform. As soon as the church starts being associated with the wise, the mighty, and the noble, we should go, uh-oh. That's not how God typically does things. We should be a little skeptical here. And conversely, when the gospel only seems to be thriving through what is foolish, through what is weak, through what is base, we should say, we're right on schedule. When we look around at ourselves and at our church and our family and we say, you know what, I just don't think we really can hack it in this world and with its current preferences and standards, that's okay. That's okay. Or perhaps even more difficult for us to accept what happens when the Lord brings to ruin the wise and the mighty and the noble things in our lives and leaves us destitute? Even for Paul, as you'll recall, God humbled him and gave him a thorn in the flesh and gave him weakness. And Paul said, Lord, take this away. And God said, no, the way I work in my church is also sometimes how I work in you and my power will be perfected through your weakness just as it's going to be perfected through the weakness of the church as a whole. We can find great distress when we see that happening because according to the world, all is lost. Or as Christians, we can understand that this is how God works and find great comfort there, knowing that those very things that seem most hopeless are in fact the exact sort of things that God uses to undo the wise, the mighty, and the noble in this world. As Christians, we need to see the world through God's eyes and not through the lens of those who are so fixated on what is being done away with that they won't even notice that it's being done away with until it's over. And that brings us then to our last major point this morning, and that is this. God works through a counterintuitive people specifically because they best fulfill his counterintuitive plan to bring about his counterintuitive purpose. In verses 30 to 31... And in verse 30, it begins this way, but by his doing, but by his doing. Now, I've seen a few of you uh, sovereignty hounds in the room twitching all morning that we haven't camped on this yet. A balm of Gilead is coming. By his doing, Paul continues to emphasize the sovereign work of God in all this. And I hope we've noticed that language that literally fills this entire argument. And it has all the way back from where we began looking at the word of the cross. If you look with your eyes back to verse 18, us who are being saved, not who are saving ourselves, those of us who are being saved, verse 21, in the wisdom of God, God was well pleased. He is saving those who... Verse 24, to those who are called, 
Verse 26, consider your calling. And then in verses 27 to 28, I hope you saw it. God has chosen, God has chosen, God has chosen. And then here in verse 30, by his doing. Notice a pattern? To the proud and clamoring Corinthians, Paul is pounding on the drum of God's sovereign work in their salvation. And that is something that we should love and cherish as well. Because guess what? Since God chose a counterintuitive people, and since he has a counterintuitive plan, if he, as the God of the universe, isn't sovereign over this whole thing, we're in big trouble. Because we're not exactly the motley crew that's going to get the job done on our own, are we? And I think we've experienced that. In our marriages, we've discovered, I am not sufficient for such things. In our parenting, we've discovered, I am not sufficient for such things. In difficult relationships in our life, I am not sufficient for such things. In our church, in our evangelism to our neighbors, they don't like my four-point outline. And if we don't have the confidence to say, the God of the universe chose me, the God of the universe chose this message the god of the universe chose this church these means this time and he's going to bring his purposes to pass then we're in big trouble but if this is about the god who is saving and the message of the god who sent his son and the people that god has chosen and the neighbors that god has put us with and the resources that god has given us and the spirit of god who lives within us and if this is about god from before time began until the end of time if he is the one upon whom all things depend ultimately well that's a relief that's a relief and that Notice here is Paul's hope for the church in Corinth. This is why going all back to the beginning, he appealed to their calling. Because this church is a mess. And what they are doing is currently bringing shame on the name of Christ. Their hypocrisy and their sin and their fighting is currently counter to the message of the cross. But Paul says... His great confidence is, you know what? Despite yourselves, God chose you. Despite yourselves, God is working through you. Despite yourselves, God is going to use the foolish, the weak, and the ignoble to bring to naught all things that are raised up against his Christ. That is a glorious truth. It is by God's doing that you are, Paul says, in Christ. If the word of the cross, if those five words are Paul's summary of the gospel's content, then being in Christ is Paul's favorite summary of the gospel's results. And you might want to do, do this as you read your Bible, especially in Paul's writings. Just highlight or underline every time you see that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That will be such a rich study. We don't have time to go down that whole path this morning, but Paul understood in a way that would have overwhelmed him the joy of being in Christ because up until that point, Paul thought he needed to get to God in Paul through the law, through obedience, through his own wisdom, through his own strength, through his own nobility all those things that he boasted on prior to coming to know Christ. 
And he, more than most, was so keenly aware of how far short he fell of the standard of God. And so for him, what a privilege it was to realize Christ came and did for me what I could not do for myself, and by faith I am now in him. And what he has secured is mine, and his merits are mine, and his certain position in the family of God is is mine in him. And his whole, all of Paul's New Testament writings are an exploration and a celebration of all the benefits of not standing before God on the basis of his own boasting, but standing before God on the basis of being in Christ. And so now he gives us this little window into what it means to be in Christ, into what it means for Jesus to be, as it says here, the one who became to us wisdom from God. It is, it is the way of the world at this time for preachers and speakers and rhetoricians to come in to speak wisdom. But Paul says, no, Jesus didn't come with wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. He is wisdom to us. He is the full revelation of God the Father. And he is our wisdom. And, and I want us to catch what Paul is kind of doing here, because he's, he's flipping something around a little bit. We sort of think of wisdom as like this, this message that's really, really clever. And if we understand it, then we're wise. And Paul has more of an effective understanding of wisdom. But what does that accomplish? But what does that accomplish? And so when Paul looks at the wisdom of this world, he's like, that sounds really smart. And you guys can chat about that in hell someday, which is where that wisdom will take you. In contrast is Jesus Christ, ridiculed, scorned, despised, forsaken, triumphant. And in him is accomplished everything all these smart ideas can't do. Jesus has become to us the wisdom of God. He is the knowledge that accomplishes its good purposes. And I believe these next three words, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, are meant to explain and expound how Jesus is the wisdom from God. And to do so, really, in reference to the same three categories we've been looking at all morning, wisdom, weakness, and nobility. Paul says, he has become to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and righteousness. Righteousness, sometimes in your Bible, that word is translated back and forth as righteousness and justice. It is always and perfectly doing what is right and what is just to do. And in this case, and in Paul's writings, righteousness often has a forensic sense, meaning Paul is emphasizing that Jesus has become to us the righteousness that allows us to stand before God and be declared not guilty. It's attached to our justification. The fact that guilty sinners can be viewed by God as not guilty sinners. That's good news. The wisdom of this world, no matter how developed its ethical or moral system, will never be able to make you stand before God one day and be declared not guilty. But Jesus can, and for the Christian, already has 
accomplish that very thing and totally and finally. He's also our sanctification. He is our holiness. He is that which makes us holy. He himself is holy apart from sin. And he has shared that with us when we are in him. And in this in this context, in Paul's writing, that term refers more to the practical morality that ought to flow out of our Christian life. We are considered by God to be his holy ones. Remember, Paul already appealed to that at the beginning of the book to the church in Corinth. You are God's holy ones. You're just not acting like it. But God is also shaping us in Christ so that we will more and more begin to act and live according to who we already are positionally in Christ. And so all the wisdom of the world is impotent to change the fallen nature of our own hearts. And yet Christ has become to us that very holiness that identifies us with God, but he is also producing in us the change that will conform us into a holy people in a way that this world cannot. The mighty of this world are passing away, but in Jesus we have something so much greater positional holiness before the Father and ever-increasing practical holiness in daily living. And he's going to pivot on that concept as he continues to rebuke them for their sin and call them to repentance. And so we don't need the wisdom of this world. We have righteousness. We don't need the might of this world. We have sanctification. We don't need the nobility of this world. We have his name. We have redemption. Jesus, by means of a price paid, has purchased for himself a people for his own good pleasure. To those who were hopelessly in bondage, Jesus has become our redemption. And this term has in view that glorious transfer of slaves from bondage to freedom. This world has its nobility, which will be cut off. You can't be from the right family in this world to not be a slave to sin. But in Christ, we have true freedom from slavery to sin. And no ruler on earth has ever been strong enough to accomplish that, even for himself. What a savior. Amen? Even if we are dummies, I think we can see where this lesson on boasting is going to end. Don't you? Paul is going to spell it out for us, though, explicitly here in verse 31. So that God has made Christ to be the wisdom of God. He has given to us righteousness, sanctification. He has given to us redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does all this mean? It means that unimpressive people should boast constantly and loudly, but not about themselves. Our boast should be in the Lord who has accomplished a total victory through a counterintuitive gospel that is now being proclaimed by a counterintuitive people. And this is the second half of Paul's Sunday school lesson. He's landing his argument with Jeremiah 9.24. We just read Jeremiah 9.23 a few minutes ago. Jeremiah 9.24 says this, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. 
This world wants in its wisdom and in its strength and in its nobility to be able to be the ones that exercise loving kindness, to be the ones that exercise justice, to be the ones that exercise righteousness on the earth, but they don't. They end up being cruel and hateful. They end up being unjust and oppressive. They end up being unrighteous and wicked. And God says, so stop boasting in all those things that accomplish nothing and instead boast in this. You worship a kind of God that does all those things and does them right because he likes to do it. That's the kind of God we worship, an unimaginable God through an unexpected Savior who calls an unlikely people to preach an unimpressive in this world's estimation message of the cross And in this way, the entire universe is being brought to its glorious purpose. And that's pretty cool. That's a lot to chew on, and I hope that you will this week. And so as we get ready to head towards our time in the Lord's table this morning, I want to leave us with just a few thoughts. And the first is this, what are we boasting in? What are we boasting in? So you look back over the the previous week, as you look back even over the previous years, What has been the strong confidence of your life, of your family? What do you talk about? What do you look to? What do you praise and celebrate? What are you excited about? Are you you proud of your career? Are you proud of your, your financial portfolio? Are you proud of the accomplishments that you've made and the reputation that you have in society? Is, is that what gives you your boasting in life or conversely, Have you no contentment in life because you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the power, and you don't have the nobility that you think you need in order to be happy? Sometimes you can find out what your boast is by figuring out what you're complaining about. Or do we boast in Christ and in what has been accomplished, what is being accomplished, and what will be accomplished as a guarantee of the power of the sovereign God at work through his plan. What are we boasting? And secondly, do we love all God's chosen dummies? Do we love all God's chosen dummies? An understanding of God's plan and a love for the God who planned it must cause us to look around at all the unlikely suspects, including ourselves, that God has decided to throw into his church and say, these are my people. These are my people. And if there is in our heart something that says, you don't fit in, let us take a moment and pause and remember, there is only one person who fits into God's family. That was Jesus Christ. And in him, God has brought all kinds of people who don't fit in. And for this, we should be very thankful. And thirdly, are we content with God's chosen plan? Are we content with God's chosen plan? Are you going to let God finish the work he started his way? Or do we feel the need to constantly keep spiffing up the message to make it sound wiser, bolstering up the methods to make them appear more powerful, trying to gin up more cultural you know, gravitas to make it appear more noble? Or are we content to do God's work God's way and let his plan finish itself as he designed it? And we can rest in that. Let the world mock. Let the world scoff. It is going away. And to those who are called, they're going to get dragged in here whether they want to or not. Be content with God's chosen plan. And that will free us up to boast in Christ without apology and without distraction. 
And one of the most tangible ways that we can boast in him on a weekly basis is through partaking of communion. And so I would invite you to prepare your elements this morning to recall the death of Jesus Christ is a chance to remember very specifically the counterintuitive plan of God. We preach Christ crucified. God killed God to save man. It is a chance to reaffirm our unity as a counterintuitive people. To look around this room and say, thank you, God, that you're building your family. And that all of us, as different and as strange as we are, can be together gathered around the work of Jesus Christ. And we'll be perfected in that work to the day of glory. And it's a chance to boast in Christ crucified, to proclaim until his return that he came and died. And so I would invite you to join with me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to boast together in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. And I look forward to in glory when our minds are as they should be and our hearts are as they should be to being able to begin the journey of properly appreciating that your plan is wisdom and it is strength and it is the greatest nobility. Make us content in this world that is broken to endure the ultimately impotent schemes and mockings of this world and and to cling to what we know is true and is powerful in Christ without embarrassment. Or may we continue to preach the message of the cross. May we continue to live it out through the power of your Holy Spirit and, and we look forward to watching you continuing to call to yourself, whether Jew or Gentile, everybody that you have set your affections on. Make us faithful. We pray, Lord, for your glory. And this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's take together.